we're going to start in uh, Hebrews 1 and kind of go back and forth from there to the Psalms. So if you want to put your bookmark in or your, put your thumb in, that'd be great. Uh, I want to, last week I spent kind of introducing the book of Hebrews and talking a little bit about the context that it comes out of. I'm going to do a little bit of that again uh, this week, and then we're going to dive right into the text itself. Uh, and remember last week that I said the, um, the, the key theme of Hebrews uh, is that uh, Jesus is better, right? If, if you remember nothing else, a three-word summary, you should turn to the first page of Hebrews in your Bible and write at the top, Jesus is better. Because uh, if somebody ever asks you what, what is Hebrews about, that's what it's about. It takes each and every element of, the, of, of Jewish Old Testament belief, uh, and it, it says, uh, yeah, that was good, right? God spoke to us through that and revealed himself to us through the prophets and Moses and the tabernacle and angels and a variety of other things, but Jesus is better, right? That's always going to be the conclusion. Uh, and then, then the, the exhortation or the result of, of Jesus being better is don't look back. Don't return to what you were. You don't, you don't have to do that uh, because Jesus is better. Um, so we're, we're going to continue exploring that this week. Um, I, I wanted to say very quickly, last week I, I talked a bit about what, what the gospel is. Like what, what are they retreating away from as a church in Hebrews if they go back to Judaism? What's the gospel mean? And we talked a little bit, right, about the idea that it is, uh, in our culture, we often construe the, the gospel as an offer, right? It's uh, Christ died for my sins, and if I accept and believe in him, I'm saved. Like that, to, uh, to many of us, that's the gospel. And that's part of the gospel. Like if I drew a, a pie, it would be a slice of it. But what it is, in the cultural context into which the gospel is being breathed in Hebrews, is an announcement that it's the good news that a, that a king has arrived and things have changed. Uh, and that not just things have changed within the Roman Empire politically, right? There's a new king, but things have changed within the spiritual world as well. Um, and this, this kind of came home to me this week. Um, can you show that picture? This is uh, Athanasius of Alexandria. He lived in uh, like 300 AD to 370 AD. He's a good-looking guy. Um, he was an early church father. He was the bishop of the church in Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, and he wrote a, a really, really wonderful book that you can get in translation. Uh, it is called On the Incarnation of the Word of God. Uh, and in it, he makes uh, a whole bunch of different arguments for uh, why Jesus is God, uh, and then also why Jesus is alive right now. Uh, and that's, that's kind of his, the, the structure of the book is around those two things. And, and he wrote this passage um, that it really jumped out at me as exemplifying that, that idea of the gospel that I talked about last week. Um, the, and it, so the church fathers lived in this, they had this worldview and they lived in a world that was alive with spirits and spiritual energy. And the, the idea that... Um, I, so there's a, a, a scholar, um, uh, Caleb Rowe, he calls, or Kevin Rowe, he call, calls the ancient world demon-haunted because to an ancient person, 
there were many powers that you had to satisfy. There were m- many gods and many spirits that you had to kind of uh, uh, like make happy in order for your life to be good. Um, and for the church fathers, right, they were looking at uh, Christ uh, as uh, an invasion, right, from, from the true power, right, from God himself, who is species unique and uh, created the universe into this demon-haunted world victorious. So let me read this passage to you. It just it jumped out at me that th- this is his proof that Jesus is alive. He says, uh, If he did not rise again, but is still dead, how does he drive away and persecute and cast down the false gods deemed by unbelievers to be alive and the demons they worship? For where Christ is named in his faith, there all idolatry is destroyed and every deceit of demons is refuted. And no demon ever endures the name, but on merely hearing it flees and departs. Now this is not the work of a dead man, but of a living and especially of God. So that idea is not novel, right? It's in the theology of Paul. Uh, if you'd asked an Old Testament, uh, an Old Testament Jew or an Old Testament Hebrew, uh, what is Baal or what is Zeus or what is some other god of the other nations, they would have said, oh, they're demons, right? Like our god's the, the real one, but, and they're worshiping something deceitful. So that's, that idea is not new. But what, what strikes me is how matter-of-factly Athanasius uh, views Christ's exaltation over all these other gods. It's not, he doesn't argue for it. That's his starting point, Christ's triumph. And his victory over all these powers is where he begins to talk about why Jesus is alive. Um, the Olympian gods held sway over the ancient world, uh, right, in this, this really profound way. Um, Zeus, right, people, people sacrificed their children to Zeus. I was at the, uh, the gym today, uh, and I, I, the barbell that I, uh, one of the barbells I picked up off the rack, it, it said Zeus on it. It's a brand name. Right? He is powerless. He is worshipped nowhere in all the universe. Right? Only Yahweh, everywhere that Christ's name is spoken, uh, right? according to Athanasius, that these, these uh, beings hold no power. Um, so I just, I, that's the gospel, right? The idea that, the idea that uh, um, not just the physical world, but the spiritual world is subdued by Christ's victory. So, sorry, I didn't mean to, to go on this long excursus, but it, it was really powerful to me. So, we're going to talk about, uh, can you show the outline, Richard, maybe? Okay, one, background, Jewish religion in the Roman Empire. So, this is a book that's written to Jewish people, Hebrews. Um, and you may say, well, what, uh, why would they want to go back to being Jewish from being Christian, right? Because in our minds, they're, they're pretty similar, right? We even have the phrase Judeo-Christian. Well... Uh, in the Roman Empire, uh, Judaism is a, um, it's a recognized religion. Uh, so that very quickly, there are around, uh, at this time, around 7 million Jews in the Roman Empire, which is about 10% of its population, so a pretty significant population group. Uh, I think when we read the New Testament, we get the idea that um, the Romans have been around, like the state of affairs that exists in Matthew 1 has existed for years and years and years, 100 years, 1,000 years. 
uh, at that point, the Romans have only been in Palestine for 50 years. Like it's, it's a new situation, almost. Like Within the lifetime of a person, the, the Romans have arrived and conquered everything. Um, so it's, it's a tense situation in many ways. There are Jewish resistant, resistance fighters who live up in the hills, uh, who are, are constantly looking for opportunities to kill uh, Roman officials. Uh, it, it, it's real bad from a political perspective. And so uh, because this population is so troubled and so troubling, it, in part because they worship very differently than the Romans or any population that the Romans know of, um, that the, um, the uh, Roman general Pompey, when he conquered Jerusalem, he actually entered the temple and went into the Holy of Holies. He tore the curtain and went inside, and he came out, and he said, they're atheists, because there were no idols inside. It was, it was just the ark. Um, so fr- from their perspective, they didn't understand Judaism, but they knew the Jews were serious, because there were these constant upheavals and constant rebellions. Um, and they, they struck upon a compromise, which was, you can practice your, your, they called it an ethnic religion. You can practice your ethnic religion. Uh, you have to pay a tax, uh, and you don't have to sacrifice to the emperor like everybody else. Everybody else had to worship the emperor as a god. You don't have to do that, but, but you have to promise to pray for him to your god. And the Jews were like, okay, we can, we can live with that. They, they accommodated that idea. Um, so that, that became part of, of kind of their identity as an ethnic people was that they were allowed to preserve and hold on to their religion. Doesn't mean they weren't ever pro, uh, pro, or persecuted. There were uh, several times during the history of Rome where Jews were uh, uh, expelled from the city of Rome or were otherwise like, uh, punished for practicing their religion. It wasn't completely peaceable, but, but they had this kind of uneasy balance where they were permitted to practice their religion. Christianity had no such accommodation to it. Um, Why? Uh, Well, imagine a group of people showing up uh, and saying, you know what? Uh, There's a king who is greater than the emperor, and we won't worship the emperor. And also, you tried to kill this king, and he's alive right now. Um, that the Romans uh, d- did not understand Christianity, uh, but what they heard was treasonous. I, sometimes I, uh, I compare the, uh, the Roman response to Christianity. It's like if you put a PlayStation game in an Xbox, uh, which, <laughs> which will resonate with some of you. Like it just, it's like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what to do with it. Um, so they really couldn't process Christians, but the, the, the part of what they heard that scared them was, there's a new king, right? There's a gospel of a new king who is a ruler and things have changed. Uh, and uh, there's only one king and his name is Caesar Augustus and he lives in Rome and you don't get to say that he's not king. Uh, so from the, the Romans' perspective, Christianity is very dangerous. So Christians are immediately persecuted for many, many years. So you can see, right, as a, as a Jew, if, you are, if you're Jewish and you become a Christian, and then you face sudden persecution, right? you might look back and say, oh gosh, it, it was really nice to be able to practice our, our religion, and the Romans are jerks, yeah, we don't like them, they're, 
they're no friends of ours, but uh, like they weren't burning my neighbors because of, of uh, what we believed. They, right? So the, the temptation to go back must have been overwhelming, right? In the face of, of um, the kind of uh, concentrated uh, attacks on Christians that, that were happening at that time. So, um, point two. I uh, want to make a point really quickly. Um, I, so I'm going to do a lot of work in the next few, next few uh, weeks about, uh, to bridge kind of the cultural context between uh, uh, where we're at now and what was happening then. Uh, and I, I understand to some of you this style of teaching might not be familiar, uh, but it, it, it's very, very important that we get inside the head of, a sec- of Second Temple Jews who have become Christians, or we're not going to understand this uh, in, the, way, in the, the fullest way possible. That means we're going to go back and look at the Old Testament. It means we're going to try to think like a persecuted Jewish person in the Second, uh, in, in the, uh, in the second Temple era, uh, because if we can do that, we can unlock what it means for us. Um, you can kind of think of it as, uh, and I came up with this analogy uh, on my morning drive this morning, but... Um, which tells you when I did the outline. Uh, I, so there's a little creek uh, by my house. Uh, it's like maybe a quarter of a mile away. Um, and it's not very big. It's like uh, maybe half the size of this room. You can, you can get across it in, usually a, in, by, on foot uh, in about a, a second, right? And there's a little foot, foot bridge that goes over it. Um, that joins up. That's the, the derby. Um, that joins up with the Ohio River, about five miles away from it. Um, and there, right, at the Ohio River, you, you, there's like a half-mile bridge, right, that you have to cross. Eventually, the Ohio goes into the Mississippi, right? And the Mississippi flows down into the ocean. Uh, and if you go down to Louisiana, there's a place where you have to drive like 17 miles on a bridge. The context gets wider and wider and wider and wider the further we get from the event. Uh, and so... I mean, we're looking back at 2,000 years ago, uh, so we're going to have to do some work, right, to, to think about what the context is. We're going to have to drive over a really long bridge um, in order to, to do the work of understanding the context and getting inside the head of a second temple Jew. Third, uh, so some of you asked about this last week, whether we would address these. There are, in Hebrews, four warning passages uh, these are the most difficult passages in the whole New Testament, um, and they're difficult because they seem to say that you can lose your salvation, uh, and they, some, some, uh, some denominations or some groups have, have interpreted it that, that way, others have not. Um, we're going to have just a class about the forewarning passages, so as we go through here kind of uh, consecutively, I'm going to skip them. Uh, I'm not going to skip them because I don't want to talk about them, although I don't really want to talk about them. But we're <laughs> um, if, if it were easy, I'd love to talk about it. Um, but we'll, we'll get to them at the end. Um, uh, they, are, um, they are a warning, um, but n- not a warning that you can lose your salvation, just as a, a spoiler. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about those when we get to them. I, I didn't want people to think I was ignoring them, though, in my outline. Next slide. I talked about high Christology last week, and somebody asked me what it meant. Um, like, hey, what, what, can you give an example? Um, you can think of high Christology as the idea. I said, 
Hebrews has a high Christology. That means that the author of Hebrews thought Jesus was God. That's, that's all that that means. Um, and uh, you could argue, uh, I think, that the, all the New Testament has a high Christology. Um, but there, there's always this um, tension, right? Jesus is fully man, and he's fully God. Uh, and in our age, um, there are some churches that very much want to emphasize this side. Right? There's a, a, there was a, a pretty big movement in the 1970s called the Jesus Seminar. Uh, and the Jesus they produced in their scholarship and work was kind of like a Alan Alda or <laughs> like, a, like a, a wimp, uh, you know, like a, just a, 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 like a complete beta male guy. Um, he was like a 1970s, you know, a guy from the 1970s. Um, and on the other end, right, is the high Christology, uh, is the hot, no, your dad's an alpha, Jordan. Uh, <laughs> huh? That, uh, on the other end is the, is, is the high Christology that's contained in, uh, in Hebrews, right? The, the author of Hebrews believes with all, all his heart and mind and soul that Jesus Christ was not just a man, but fully divine. Uh, and you see that in things like his reference to Christ's, uh, Christ's presence at the moment of creation, uh, Christ's creative power, Christ's redemptive power, the fact that he's enthroned at the right hand of God. Uh, all those things, right, are drivers of the idea that, that Jesus isn't just a man uh, who was good. He's, he's God. Uh, and so let's dive in, sorry, uh, about the... The excursus there, but all of that was important to me. Uh, and I'm teaching the class, so I'll talk about whatever I want. Um, so let's begin at verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, and we read this the first three verses last week, but I'll go ahead and do it for continuity's sake. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken, spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So as we, as we proceed here, I want you, in, you know, in your own reading of Hebrews in the future, I want you to think of... Uh, we have those, those two images, right? Uh, uh, he is the emanation of his glory, and he's the exact Im- character, the exact image of his character, right? Think of a, a light source, right? Like the sun or a torch or a flashlight, uh, positioned, like, let's say here, right? Um, and then think of somebody holding up an object. What happens? Right? There's a shadow that's cast over there. We're going to see in here that one of the things that one of the analogies that the, the author of he, author of Hebrews uses is that the things of the Old Testament are a shadow of what Christ is, and, and that's what he means, right? God is here casting his light. Christ is here, and what you see is 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 the glory of God mirrored in the Old Testament, or his shadow lies across the Old Testament. And through these shadows, right, you, you can detect who Christ is, but you shouldn't go back. You, you shouldn't be satisfied with shadows because the real thing is here, right? The perfect and uh, the complete image of God's character 
is in the form of Jesus Christ. So, number four. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son he hath said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Okay, so I want to I want to kind of unpack the structure of this argument. But the the rhetorical technique that the uh, or the argumentative technique that the author of Hebrews is using here uh, is one that Paul uses a lot in Romans. And what he's doing is saying, well, what about this Old Testament passage and this one and this one and this one and this one? And he's pulling from six different places, seven different places, and, and then relating it to the subject matter that he's talking about. And, and the, the intent is to overwhelm the listener uh, or the, the reader with, um, with these Old Testament passages so that you say, yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's right. Um, his argument here is in three pieces. First of all, um, I'm sorry, it's B. Got it? Okay, sorry. So th- there are three arguments here, um, and each one relies on two Old Testament passages that we'll turn to. Uh, first of all, the Son is superior to angels uh, by virtue of his relationship with the Father. So let's get back to uh, verse 4. It says, Being so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Right. So, uh, number one, he's better because his inheritance is from the Father. He's better than the angels. Um, and I, I guess I, I should clarify here, too, that the, the word that's used for angels here in Greek is angelos, um, which means messenger. Um, and it, it gets uh, in the Hebrew word that is in the, the Hebrew word that's in the Old Testament passage, the passages that get, it gets quoted is Elohim, which sometimes gets, uh, gets translated as gods. Uh, right? the, these are spirits who are not God, right? They're not Yahweh. They're something else. Um, and they're not, uh, they're not the, like the greeting card and the baby, fat baby angels or uh, pretty lady angels. They're not, that's not what they are, right? These, these guys are like the guys who appear in the Old Testament all the time. And, and they're like, don't be afraid. Uh, like that's what they always say. And everybody's like, ah. Uh, that, that's who these guys are, right? Th- these are spirit beings who are not Yahweh. Um, and we don't have any visibility into like 
how they're different or the same or you know what level it doesn't matter um, the from the perspective of this this author right he's just saying angels it's generic there there was a thriving uh, I think I mentioned this last week but I'll mention it again there's a thriving uh, there was a thriving uh, uh, kind of angelology that was happening in Judaism at the time people were extremely into angels um, and they had a whole system set up of a whole system of thought around angels their idea was that angels had a system of sacrifices that they were doing in the heavenly realms that mirrored what people were doing uh, in the temple, um, that the angels attended the sacrifices that were happening in the temple, that um, uh, almost like this, it wasn't angel worship, but almost like this idea that angels were a necessary part of your spiritual life. Um, and they had a whole, like a whole uh, system uh, surrounding that. Um, so this is this is important. Um, like I, you know, I think we we tend to think of angels as like the the greeting card, and you know, the pat baby angels or pretty lady angels, and that's it. So um, first argument that the the, uh, the son is superior because he receives an inheritance from the father, and then he says, "For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son; this day have I begotten thee." So that's going to be Psalm two seven. Uh, which I'll turn to, if I can find it. The, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalms uh, about 150 times. Uh, his book of Psalms is very important to him uh, or her. So Psalms 2-7. So the, Psalms 2-7 is interesting. It's a, it's a coronation psalm. Uh, this is the psalm that they would read when... Uh, a new king was enthroned. Someone would stand up and they would read this. Uh, and actually, let me read the whole thing. Why do the heathen rage? Sorry, Richard. I'm throwing Richard a curveball. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Uh, his anointed here is the Mishiach, the Messiah saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. So uh, why, why do the heathen rage? Why are, why are these, uh, these nations are like, God's so awesome, we have to rebel. Uh, he's, he, he and his Messiah are, they've, they've captured us and we have to escape. Uh, and the Lord laughs at them, and he says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will, I will declare the decree. The Lord ha hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So, do, do you understand what this, this passage is profound, right, in Hebrews, because he's connecting, right, he's saying, Jesus, Jesus was better than the angels, but because he's the Davidic king, right? He, he's God's anointed one. 
Right? So it, it, it does two things, right? It, it, can, it compares him to the angels and then says, also, he's of the line of, he, he fulfills that prophecy. Right? He, he was crowned king when he was high and lifted up on the cross. Right? That, that's the idea. So then we have, uh, and again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So this is a, a quotation from 2 Samuel 14. I know I, I said we'd only be in uh, Psalms, but I can turn here and get it. 2 Samuel seven fourteen says, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he committeth iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. So this is uh, Samuel, or this is God, or I'm sorry, this is God through Samuel announcing what he will do to the Davidic king. So, right, as a Jew, you're reading this and you're like, okay, he's better than the angels, but wait, he's also saying that Christ was, Christ completes what was said in the Old Testament about the king, or or the anointed one. So, second argument is, sorry, Richard, second is, uh, second reason that, that, uh, Christ is superior to the angels is that his position uh, is uh, in ministry and order is better than theirs. And, and you'll see what I mean in a moment. Right, he says, verse 6, And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his, spirit, his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So, catch what he's saying here, right? His argument is, one, Christ is the firstborn of all life. He's the first begotten son of God. Uh, And this is actually something that's picked up in Romans, it's picked up in Ephesians, it's picked up in several, there are like maybe eight or nine different references to Christ as the firstborn of all life. Um, Right, he's he's the, the, um, the original emanation of the Father, and the instrument of creation. And it says, uh, right, he, he starts and he says, so the angels, or he doesn't, the place he ends up is, well, angels do positive work. They're ministers and they're flames of fire and they have this role in creation that is valuable. But God didn't tell the first begotten to worship them. He told them to, to bow to him. Right, so that, that's his second argument, right? Is, and I won't go to the Old Testament passages because I think we're running out of time. Um, I won't go to those Old Testament passages, but um, he, they are, for your reference, Psalm 45, 6 through 7, and Psalm 102, 25 through 27. I lied. Psalm 97, 7, Psalm 104, 4. So um, the, the idea... Uh, obviously, uh, perhaps, is that right? It, if Christ were inferior to the angels, God wouldn't have told the angels to worship Christ. Uh, and then lastly, uh, he says, uh, the Son is from the beginning, right? The Son is eternal. Uh, and that's contained in this passage where he says, but unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. 
and thou, Lord, in the beginning, right, you, the Son, have in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. Uh, they shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy, thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time? And then he, he can, uh, so that passage is about the, uh, the eternality of the Son, right? The third argument is the Son is eternal. The Son existed before angels. He'll exist after them. He, he exists from the beginning of time to the end of it and beyond. Uh, and that being the case, he must be superior to them. Uh, and then he finishes up uh, with an, uh, what's called an inclusio. So he quotes something he said earlier. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy, my, thy footstool. Right, we just read that in Psalm 2. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them? who shall be theirs of salvation. And he, he wraps up by saying, angels are just ministering spirits. They are not the king of the universe. And then I, I want to read the last four verses of chapter two, or the first four, four verses of chapter two, because this follows a pattern. Um, and the pattern is, so the, the author of Hebrews, he, he will provide us with a, a panel that says Jesus is better, right? Than whatever. Uh, and then there's an exhortation, Right? Jesus is better, don't look back. Um, and so he says uh, in chapter 2, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and even regression, or in every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto, unto us, by them that heard him. God also hearing them witness both signs, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So catch his argument here. He says, look, if all that is true, right? If, if Christ is better than the angels, then how, how should we respond to that? Well, if... Um, what the angels brought was good, right? And we were supposed to listen to them in the Old Testament. And people were punished, right, for not listening to them. How much more culpable and blameworthy are we if with the presence of Christ, right, and the knowledge of him, we reject him, right? We, because people listen to the angels, we should listen to Christ because Christ is greater than the angels. That's the idea. Uh, and we're going to find this pattern repeated again and again and again and again um, throughout, this, throughout this book. It's, um, it's a powerful way of arguing, um, and it's a, a, it would have been especially powerful to these Jews who were absolutely steeped in the Old Testament.